scriptures to Genesis chapter 19. On page 16 of the Red Pew Bible. Your environment, whether you know it or not, affects how you live. Your environment affects how you live. Office managers know this. Research has shown that a subtle background aroma of cleaning supplies in the air influences people to be cleaner and tidier in their workspace. Google understands this. They intentionally created an environment, an open and, and bright and relaxed environment that fosters creativity and longer work hours. The mid-19th century, urban developers understood this. They knew that the urban environment, living on top of each other, crowded, created stress and anxiety. So what did they do? They created parks within the cities to go and relax. We see this truth in seasonal affective disorder, don't we? Right now, <laughs> a condition where a person's mood is closely tied with the fall and winter months that are darker and shorter makes a person feel lonelier and sadder and blue or even depressed. The environment a person lives in affects you. Some recent research from the RAND Corporation shows that youth who view a significant amount of television with sexual content are twice as likely, twice as likely to have sex out of wedlock than those who don't. The environment you put yourself in affects you. If all of what we've just said is true, consider Lot living in Sodom for years and years and years. What effect would that have on a person? We're going to see today. God's word in chapter 19 says, Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself to the face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. He said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside with him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him. 
He said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge? Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hand and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so they, could, they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out to this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Get up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are with you, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. And the Lord, being merciful to him, they brought him out of the, and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You've shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city will be called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went out early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, 
God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Father God, through me, speak to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Reading this, did any of you feel frustrated? Did you read this and at times find the the choices and the things that Lot said just like, how, it's so obvious. Think of this chapter. I think this chapter is, is a wake-up call. A wake-up call for me and for you. We can be so enculturated that we do not even realize how sinful our thinking or how unspiritual our decisions we make really are. And it teaches us, first of all, that we need to be alert to our bad judgment. We need to be alert to our bad judgment. Lot and his family did not even realize how seriously spiritually compromised they were. They did not even realize it. We read in this chapter, in our internal monologue goes something like this. At least it did for me. I'm reading along, and I go, oh, come on, Lot. What are you doing? Oh, don't do that. Are you really asking that after all of what they did? Ah, that's awful. That was kind of my internal monologue as I was reading even today. Yet Lot was totally unaware of his poor judgments, his poor decision, his poor thinking, his unspiritual thinking. This chapter is a cautionary tale for us that we have spiritual blind spots. I have it, and you have spiritual blind spots you don't even see. Certain spiritual fog banks where the right decisions are unclear. There are many reasons for for spiritual fog, many reasons. It can be ignorance. You simply don't know. It can be pride. You simply don't want to know. It can be baggage from your history and your family can be laziness. You know, I just don't want to plumb the depths of my own depravity. Or it could be what we see here, the environment you live in. The environment we live in can create what I'm calling spiritual fog in our lives. Judgments we believe are right, but there's somebody looking at them going, what are you doing? Ways of thinking and living that seem right. But somebody that takes time to look at your life goes, do you even see what you're doing? I think that's what Proverbs 14.12 speaks of directly. There seems, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is death. That's the definition of spiritual fog. And a huge fog producer is the environment we live in. Just the environment we live in. And we see that 
in, in the scripture that we read today in Lot's life. Lot, we meet way back in chapter 11, verse 28. He is the grandson of Terah, the son of Hera, Abram's nephew. And Terah takes him along when he leaves Ur. And he travels with Abram when he comes down to Canaan. And after some family squabbles, which we talked about, he's given a choice of the land by Abram, isn't he? He says, you go your way and I'll go mine. Which way do you want to go and I'll, and I'll take the rest? And in 3, 13, chapter 13, verse 10, tells us that Lot looked towards Sodom, the deep, rich valley at the, at the bottom of the Dead Sea. And that word look is a loaded word. Lot saw better, more exciting, a more secure life than God had given him at that moment. That lush valley near those prosperous cities. And that's what he chose. And then in a couple of verses later in chapter 13 and verse 12, it lets us know that Lot began living closer and closer and closer to Sodom. He just didn't move down into the valley. He started moving closer to Sodom, pitching his tent towards Sodom, it says. James Boyce insightfully writes, If we had asked Lot right then why he was not living in Sodom, he would have told you that it is a wicked city and he didn't want to get too involved in that culture. Yet in chapter 14, verse 22, we see that Lot had moved into Sodom by that time. Lot was not able to hold his distance. The allure of life in Sodom sucked him in. And finally here in chapter 19, verse 1, we see Lot where? At the city gate. At the city gate. That might not mean much in our day, but in biblical times, that was a place where men of prominence, the leaders sat, the elders sat there, where justice was meted out, where decisions of that city were made. Clearly, Scripture is communicating here that Lot was part and parcel with Sodom at this time. Righteous Lot was at the very least, at the very least, giving tacit approval to what was going on in Sodom. I think that we're meant to see Lot's life as a slow, progressive slide into spiritual fog. Though Lot, through Lot, we are given a lesson that even the righteous can be drawn into this kind of blindness, this fogginess, spiritually. Second Peter 2, verses 6, 7, and 8, tells us exceedingly clearly that Lot was a righteous man. Lot was saved. Listen to the word of God. It says, If God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what he was going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, 
For the righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Did you hear it three times? Lot was righteous. God is declaring Lot his son. And that he was bothered by the moral bankruptcy around him. But, in our text we see that living in Sodom had over time, over the years, dulled him spiritually. Had given him spiritual cataracts, if you will. Had led him into a spiritual fog bank. Pastor Wilbur Chapman is famous for saying, it's not the ship in the water, but the water in the ship that sinks it. He goes on to say, so does not the Christian in the world, but the world in the Christian that is the danger. Living in Sodom had affected Lot's ability to discern what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what's godly and ungodly. It had had dulled his courage to stand up to those things. It had muted his mouth, apparently. We see the environmental effects in verses 1 through 3, don't we? There the, these two male angels come and they want to sleep in the town square. Nothing odd about that in, in biblical times, by the way. It would be kind of odd if somebody wanted to come sleep in the middle of southwest town square, but not in, in biblical times. But did you notice Lot's reaction to that? He, he, it says there in verse 3, he pressed them strongly. One, one uh, translation says, he manhandled them into his house. Lot did not want him, them to stay in the square. Why? Because he knew what happened to men who slept in the square. They were raped by the men of that city. He knew that. And it apparently happened to others. And he might have been tormented over that. But it seems like he never made a stand about it. He accepted it. And maybe, and maybe sitting at the front gate of Sodom, when the men would tell the stories of that, he would even feign laughter to be one of the guys. Look at the fog in verse 8. The men of the city surround the house and demand that the two men be given to them for sex. That word, no, is very biblical for intimate sexual relations. And what does Lot do? I mean, if this doesn't make your skin crawl, I don't know what will. He sees it as a viable option to offer his two virgin daughters instead. Brothers and sisters, don't read the Bible in a vacuum. This actually happened. And think about you doing the same thing. It's abhorrent. He says, take them and do what you please with them. 
one of the moments in Scripture that takes your breath away. Imagine the spiritual fog you have to be in to think that that is a good option. And then in verses 15 and 16, we see that, that Lot, even when the angel said that judgment is coming, destruction is coming, what does he do? We're going to unpack this a little bit more a little later. No sense of urgency. You know what? He lingered. He doesn't want to leave Sodom. And then, of course, there's the absolutely mind-blowing coda to Lot's life we find in verses 30 through 39, right? Where after they leave and, and after the destruction, they go to this little city of Zorar and it says that they were afraid for they're afraid for some reason, we're not told, and so they go up finally into the hills where they were first supposed to go, and they start living in a cave, and his daughters, wanting children and knowing that they won't have them, they get their father drunk, and they have sex with their father. And they have children by their father. And by the way, this is on successive nights. So it's not like Lot had one night. He woke up and they did it again. I mean, looking out at your faces, I mean, your faces, I have that same face too. Just pause for a moment and consider the last words we have about righteous Lot. And his life are found in verse 36. Here is the legacy of righteous Lot. Read, so both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. That's the legacy. That's the spiritual fog. Lot is an example of what our public reading of Scripture describes, isn't it? Lot himself was saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. He had no gold, he had no silver, he had no precious stones. Nothing really to show for his life. That is the testimony of living in spiritual fog. This is a cautionary tale for all of us, because we live progressively in a sodomite culture. A culture that produces spiritual fog. Think of the pressure we feel to totally accept wholeheartedly the homosexual lifestyle. See it as normal and right, noble and even heroic. And if you disagree, with, you are called homophobic, hateful, and intolerant. Spiritual fog. We live in a society where same-sex marriages are as valid before God, or so they say, as heterosexual ones, because it is based on love. That's spiritual fog. We live in a society where you can choose your gender now. That's spiritual fog. 
We live in a society where abortion is a perfectly fine and acceptable method of birth control. That's spiritual fog. Where a pregnancy before a certain time is just viewed as a flake of skin that can be just, just taken out instead of a person. Spiritual fog. Where sex is a natural human impulse, society tells us, that should be acted upon whenever and wherever you feel like it. And it's never sinful, because it's a natural impulse. Spiritual fog. Teens, you are told again and again that it is repressive and old-fashioned to save your virginity for marriage. A spiritual fog. There's no difference between living together and marriage. Spiritual fog. That having a child out of wedlock is just as natural as having it in. Spiritual fog. The crude language and joking and public sexual innuendo is just fun and harmless. Spiritual fog. That sexually explicit and explicitly violent video games are just fine. There's nothing wrong with first-person shooter where a person is just blown to obliteration in front of your very eyes. Spiritual fog. There's even spiritual fog concerning the church where society tells us, church, you know, it's really not that important. It can, it's secondary. It's not critical. Spiritual fog. It tells us that membership is not really necessary. That you can just come and, and be a, a, a perfectly part of a, of a body by just coming. Spiritual fog. The question that Lot's life puts before us is, how has Sodom gotten into me? How has Sodom gotten into you? How much water is in your ship? Where, better question is, where are the spiritual fog banks in your life? Where is your judgment bad? That's why we have to be so diligently alert and humble to the possibility that we actually could have spiritual fog banks. We might not be seeing things clearly and correctly. We might have blind spots that living in this culture have produced in us. And here's the difficult thing. You can't discern them yourself. You might think you can, but you can't. So how do we clear our fog banks, Pastor? Well, Ross shows us, Alan Ross says this in his commentary. As long as the Lord left Lot alone, he would hold to his faith but live in Sodom. His hypocrisy is revealed only by the visitation of from on high. I think one way that we can clear our spiritual fog banks is that we look to God. We look to the Holy Spirit in us. We have God 
with us to help us with this. The Holy Spirit is given for many reasons as our counselor and our paraclete, but one of the reasons he's given is to prick our consciences. It's to say, no, that's not right. No, you shouldn't think that way. No, don't go there. No, don't agree with that. But even, Scripture tells us, the Holy Spirit within us can be dismissed. Can't. We say no long enough. I think this is a lesson with Lot. You put him to the side long enough, and it says in 1 Timothy that, you know what? Your conscience will become hardened to hearing the Spirit. Become seared, if you will. Kevin DeYoung writes in his book, The Art of Turning from Sin to Christ for a Joyful, clear, Joyfully Clear Conscience. He says, I think if Christians from an earlier time would come and visit our churches, there would be two things that would surprise them. First, they would be absolutely amazed at our prosperity. We have more comforts and conveniences than kings and queens had in almost any time in history. Second, he writes, I think they would be amazed at how comfortable we have become with sensuality. He goes on to write, I fear many of us have gotten adept at shoving our consciences aside. True for me. True for me. I'm adept at that. Is it true for you? But Christ gave us another gift, not just the Holy Spirit to lift the fog. He gave us a second gift, and that is, look around you. Look, no, really, look around you. He gave us the church. He gave us each other. It is here that your life is to be x-rayed. It is here that the contrast between how you're thinking worldly and how you're thinking godly become evident. They come to the surface. God has given us each other so that the spiritual fog that is continually being produced by our culture can become sifted and lifted. There's a question in the discovery group notes this week that asks you to consider allowing your discovery group to look at your life and tell you what you don't see. That would be a good question. Hard? Uncomfortable? Yes. But a really good question. Because as I do, and as you do sometimes, we sit at the gates of Sodom, and we don't even realize it. Secondly, this chapter instructs us to not only be aware of our poor judgments, but be aware of God's judgment. If there's one point of this passage that comes to the forefront, it, it is that God judges sin, right? Sin will be horrifically and finally judged. There's a judgment by God that we need to be aware of. Here the angels have been sent to witness Sodom and Gomorrah's depravity. And after the men surround the house, Lot's house, and demand 
that they be turned over for sexual purposes. That's all the angels need to see. And they tell Lot in verses 12 and 13. They say, have you anyone else here? Sons, daughters, sons-in-laws, anyone in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people have become great before the Lord, and the Lord sent us to destroy it. And we see in the following verses two reactions to God's judgment. Two reactions. The first one we read in the very next verse. He goes to his sons-in-laws and he says, God's judgment is coming, and what do they do? First reaction to God's judgment is laughter. They laugh. They think he's joking. They don't take him seriously. They thought he was jesting or joking. This is the general, the general, I'm, I'm painting with a broad, broad brush here. This is the general reaction of the world to God's judgment. When we warn them about God's judgment. In general, Maybe they don't laugh, belly laugh out loud, but they don't take it seriously. They laugh when they, we tell them it's coming. But it is our job, part and parcel of our job, why the Lord keeps us here, remains, keeps us here, is so that we can warn, so that we can tell people it's real. It's coming. Whether they laugh or not, whether they take it seriously or not, that's part of why we're left here. The second reaction to God's judgment is lingering. See that in verse... I'm sorry. See that in verse 16. We see that Lot lingered. Lot didn't want to leave. Even after he had seen the supernatural uh, uh, blindness by the angels, and the angels told him destruction is coming, Lot didn't want to leave. Derek Kidner wrote, Not even brimstone will make a pilgrim out of Lot. There was no urgency in Lot. Life in Sodom had become too precious to him. I can see him sitting at his wooden table in his dining room in the middle of the night, recalling all the good times he'd had in Sodom. Walking through the streets at night, maybe, looking at the pub where he would go three or four times a week and just be with his friends and hear the gossip of the city. He would maybe walk to the gate in the middle of the night and look at his well-worn seat there and think of the reputation and the prominence and respect that he had in that city. He didn't want to give it up. So great was his longing and sadness that he lingered. I bumped into Kim Valeric this week. Always an experience. 
The other day, she told me a story about a young woman in a church who approached her pastor and told her how disappointed she was in the people of the church. They were not as nice and accepting as she thought, she told him. They gossiped and sometimes were unkind, even to her. She told the pastor that she felt hurt and she didn't know if she was coming back. The pastor asked her to do something rather unusual. He told her to go and get a cup of water and fill it to the rim and then walk around the sanctuary three times. The women, woman kind of looked quizzically at the pastor. But she did as she was told, and she returned in a few minutes with a full glass of water. When the pastor asked her how it went, she reported that she had not spilled a drop in three revolutions. He asked her what she saw and what she heard as she went around the sanctuary. The woman said, nothing. I'd seen or heard anything. I was, I was focused on not spilling a drop. There are a lot of applications that could come out of this. But here's the one I want you to hear. It's so important what you're focused on. If you're focused on the world and what the world has to offer and what it asks, you'll become attached to it. You'll in some way, shape, or form become like, like Lot in regards to God's judgments. No sense of urgency. And you'll eventually become like Lot in regards to Christ's return. You know what? This world is its kind of nice. It's kind of comfortable. I've taken, put a lot of effort into getting along in this world. If that's your attitude, you're lingering. But, if you choose to focus on Christ and his kingdom, all these things will be added unto you. That's Matthew 6, right? Seek first his Christ in his kingdom. You will not get pulled into the spiritual fog banks as often. You'll be more well. You'll become more more biblical. You'll be praying for the Lord's return. You'll be straining forward with excitement like Paul, saying, I can't wait till he comes back. You'll be consumed with the consummation. And as we sang earlier, maybe with our mouth, we will sing, sing it with our hearts. Oh, come quickly. Oh, come quickly. Being aware of God's judgment has all kinds of effects on you. I think this chapter teaches a final thing, though, and that is to not only be aware of God's judgment, but to beware of God's judgment. In John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress, it ends, if you've, if you've, written, if you've read it, it ends on a pretty chilling note. Have you noticed that? Pilgrim enters the celestial city, which is wonderful, and then he looks over his shoulder as he enters, 
and he sees in the distance another man coming up the hill, a man named Ignorance, towards the gate of the celestial city. And this is what Bunyan writes. Now, while I was pondering all these things, I turned my head to look back and saw Ignorance coming to the river, but he quickly made it over and without half the trouble that the other two had. For it happened that there was up the river a ferryman named Vain Hope, who took ignorance across the river. Then he ascended the hill to come up to the gate, only he was alone. No other man met him with the least encouragement. When he came up to the gate, he looked at the writing above it, then began to knock, supposing that he would quickly be given admittance. But instead, he was asked by the men at the gate where he had come from and what he wanted. He answered, I would eat and drink in the presence of the king. He is taught in our streets, and I know of him. They asked him for his certificate to take in and show the king, but he fumbled around and found none. Don't you have one, they asked. But he never said a word. So they told the king... But the king would not come down and greet him and commanded the two shining ones who, es- who had escorted Christian and hopeful into the city to go out and bind ignorance hand and foot and take him away. So they did and carried him to the door that was in the side of the hill of the delightful mountains and they cast him in through a doorway. Here are the last words. Then I saw that there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven, as well as from the city of destruction. That's the lesson of Lot's wife. That's the lesson of Lot's wife. In verses 15 through 22, we've seen that the angels literally have to drag the family out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see in verse 17, they they tell them as they're going out, escape for your life. Do not even look back. Don't stop until you get to the hills. Then we read in verse 26 about Lot's wife. On the very, very edge of salvation, she looked back and became a pillar of salt. The Hebrew, Hebrew there looked back, Nebat, has the, the connotation of pay attention to or gaze intently. So we're not meant to see it as, oh, she just furtively looked back. We're meant to understand that she stopped, she turned around, and she watched her life go up in flames. She watched longingly for a long time. Kent Hughes describes it as she watched longingly as Sodom and Gomorrah and her old way of life was destroyed. She did not transform into a block of salt. And this is what I love about commentaries. They help you so much. He says, but lingered so long that the sulfurous gases overcame her, fell dead, and her corpse lay exposed and was encrusted with sulfur and debris. 
That's a much better picture than the B-movie version we get. She so longed for her old way of life that it killed her. Jesus, talking about his return and his judgment in Luke 17, said this, Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for me will save it. Lot's wife longed more for her old way of life than for rejoicing in the salvation that she had been given. For her, there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven. Jesus another time said, he who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. You know, so many people say, well, that's right. That's a pastoral verse if I've ever heard it. If you're called into the ministry, you shouldn't look back. Brothers and sisters, that's for you and me. You've been called. So life, to live a life that is dual in conviction is to live a doomed life. To live a life with one foot in the world and another in the kingdom is to invite a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. Whoever tries to keep his reputation in both this world and with God will lose both. That's the chilling lesson of Lot's wife. And it is chilling. Lest we both leave here crushed, I want you to take your Bibles and look at verses 27, 28, and 29. Here we have a passage that is filled with pathos. We read that at the, at the quietude of dawn, Abraham goes back to where he stood the day before overlooking Sodom and Gomorrah when he pleaded for it. And all he witnesses is a burnt out, putrid-smelling, smoke-filled valley. The terrifying aftermath of God's judgment. And we're confronted with a thought. And perhaps this thought darted through Abraham's mind. In Hebrews 10.31, God's word said, says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Can you imagine seeing that valley? It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a holy, holy God. Sodom and Gomorrah is a sobering reminder that God still judges sin. And if the story had ended here, we'd be left with heavy hearts and, and somewhat hopeless, right? Perhaps for those you love, perhaps for yourself if you're here and you don't know Christ. But if we read verse 29 closely, look at what it says. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. 
Anybody, does that furrow anybody's brow? God remembered Abraham and saved Lot? Hold it. Lot was saved on the account of Abraham? Hold it. Lot was saved from judgment on the righteousness of somebody else? Isn't it sweet how God just inserts the gospel right there? Isn't that beautiful? In this passage so focused on God's judgment on sin, we're given a way out, aren't we? A way to avoid God's terrible judgment. To use an Easter analogy that we're approaching, the way to do that is by putting all of your eggs in Jesus' basket. By trusting in Christ's righteousness and not your own. Isn't that what, what this is alluding to? In a way, we have to understand that Lot's righteousness, Lot's righteousness through this lens. His life simply did not stack up, right? And we read, he's righteous, he's saved? How is that? My life doesn't stack up. And if you're sitting here, and if you can have a moment of clarity, your life doesn't stack up either. But Lot was declared righteous the same way we are, having someone else's righteousness given to us. He looked forward. We look back, but he looked forward, Lot did, to someone who did live a perfect life. We know his name, Jesus Christ. Lot knew there was a snake crusher coming. Jesus lived the sinless life that you cannot. He earned the salvation that you cannot. You see, the gospel is God remembers Christ's righteousness and saves you. God remembers Christ's righteousness and saves me. We also have to put our eggs in Christ's basket in another way, by trusting that Jesus took the terrible punishment that we deserve. We have to put all those eggs in that basket, guys. So in a way, your appreciation of, your commitment to, your love for Jesus is borne out because you realize that he stood in the valley, he stayed behind, and molten rain came down on him, and we were dragged out. Sodom and Gomorrah is a lesson to fear the judgment of God. Beware of God's judgment. But Christ's offer in the gospel is literally, I will drag you out of Sodom and Gomorrah and take the punishment that you deserve. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Use it, Lord. Change us. Spirit, change us. In Jesus' name, amen.